0: Are you curious about why people behave in criminal ways? Maybe you would enjoy a fascinating career in the criminal justice system or one of the many associated agencies, working with people who have committed crime or been a victim of crime. Why not get a head start with your studies in criminology and criminal justice here at the University of Southern Queensland? To find out more, go to usq.edu.au slash bella. That's B-E-L-A. Then click on Law and Criminology. Hi, I'm Dr. Suzanne Reich, criminologist at the University of Southern Queensland. You are listening to I Am Not My Crime, a podcast featuring courageous people telling you the story about the crimes they have committed and their journey to redemption. I Am Not My Crime has been produced to help you understand that for many people, it is their circumstances that led them down the path to offending behaviour and that what somebody has done in the past is not an indication of who they are today. In today's episode, David shares his story about life growing up in the rough neighbourhoods of Sydney, where exposure to drugs and violence early in life was not out of the ordinary, and involvement in criminal activity with peers provided a place to belong.
1: Every kid is in search of identity, you know, who they are. And at that time I was in search of that and I just couldn't find it.
0: After a few stints in juvenile detention for robbery, car thefts and drug-related crime, David and his co-offenders committed one of the most serious crimes
1: wasn't intention to go and murder these people. But unfortunately, you know, on that night, it was me or them. You know, that's, that's what it comes down to.
0: Despite being charged and convicted of murder, David's life has changed for the better. As you listen, you will notice that David attributes his change to a new perspective of himself, education, building relationships with good influences, and finding a purpose in life.
1: There's one thing that sticks in my head almost every day when I wake up, and I just say it's a shame that it took someone else's life to get mine on track.
0: I'd really like to start at the beginning with your story Um, you told me a little bit about your story beforehand and um, I know that your story really begins right back in childhood so can you just tell us a little bit about where you grew up to start with
1: I come from um, a place called Bankstown based in Sydney I was raised up around that area for the first part of my childhood up until teenage years then I moved up to Sunshine Coast I did three years up there until my family were ready to come back down and we moved back down to Bankstown again. So, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that at that time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Sam, so what was life like growing up in Bankstown?
1: Uh, was very difficult. Uh, school wasn't the greatest. Surrounded by violence a lot, quite a bit. You know? So through a lot of distraught families and things like that, drugs was taken over the place at that time. We had um, a bit of a heroin epidemic back then. Um so a lot of the just the parents all the kids that were going to school with were addict, you know addicted to the drugs and it sort of fell through to the kids and everything like that and yeah, so we were surrounded by that consistently.
0: It didn't matter where you went there was some sort of crime or
1: yeah well violence. every day was a crime, yeah, every day was a crime, something you know involving just just the bashings around the school and things like that, you know, stolen vehicles and just carrying noise and whatnot you know and then eventually it turned into drugs you know people bringing bring that and sort of introducing that into the schools and yeah just kept going forward from there and it just obviously introduced you to new people that can go further so yeah.
0: what age are we talking david like what was what what's your earliest exposure to this kind of life that you remember
1: um i'd say probably around nine ten years old yeah nine to ten years old
0: and that was through school that was through school yeah your education was crime yes right and what about home? What was home like?
1: Home growing up was quite tough. Um, yeah, it was a difficult time for me. I uh, grew up in you know in a house that had you know nine people, ten people in the house. Um,
0: in what size house?
1: Oh, it was a three-bedroom, one, two, mm-hmm. three. Yeah, three bedrooms, and we turned another room into a fourth. Mm. Um, but we had a lot of people coming over because you know my family are from the island. So when they came across, we try to give them, you know, a place to stay and to get settled and, you know, welcome to Australia. <laughs> um, so when they came in, they filled up the house quite a bit, which bring a lot of other people and their friends and everything across, you know, so it was consistently just, just a packed house, you know. Um, I think they got to the family quite a bit, especially for my father. Yep. Um, working men, you know, going to work and working hot places and things like that, welding and out in building sites and things like that. Um, You'd come back home and just... The house was just a mess. You know, just people coming in, just trash it, treat it with no respect.
0: School was drugs and violence. Yes. And I would imagine frightening as well.
1: Oh, yeah, it's times, yeah, definitely.
0: Was there any place you felt safe as a kid?
1: Not really. No, I, I didn't feel safe. It was a very multicultural place too, you know, so it was sort of hard... Because <clears throat> um, in in that sense, like, I, I grew up being a half-Islander, you know. I felt that there was no South Americans in my school. <clears throat> so I tried and chill with the, with the other boys, you know, all the Islander boys and that, but I was the wrong colour. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <You know>? So, <laughs> so you didn't fit I was, Yeah, either. so <laughs> that's it. It, it. Like, for us as kids, you know, it's, I, I think the main thing about kids is um, just trying to learn about themselves. And, you know, I think identity comes to it, you know. So that comes to mind is that every kid is – in search of identity you know who they are and at that time i was in search of that and i, I just couldn't find it so that no matter where i went if i was at home i didn't feel safe there i didn't feel in i went to school and then there was other people there i didn't feel right there you know so i was i felt like i i battled my my life by myself you know and sometimes i still feel like that you know i have I have glimpses of it you know when i'm supported by good people and in my lifetime now but growing up i think i'm used to that you know getting out of things by myself And I grew up like that, you know, so it made it very difficult, yeah.
0: So being surrounded by just crime and violence, um, do you remember when you started to engage in that kind of activity yourself, about what age?
1: Um, It would have been eight or nine. And I was actually just a lookout for my uncle. So my uncle used to do a few robberies and things of cars and that lightweight. So
0: what does that involve, being a lookout
1: I'm just letting him know when someone's coming. Yeah, You know, okay. so I wasn't involved in the actual crime itself, but, you know, I was there. You know, so – and that was literally outside of my house, you know. So, yeah, all these – all these things happened. My uncle ended up getting charged for these things and, you know, put away for that sort of stuff. But he introduced me to it at an early age, and he was only young too. So he's my uncle. When I say uncle, he was 10 years older than me. Okay. You know, or something like or Probably even younger than that. Yeah, so – we weren't too far apart in a sense, you know. So he was just a teenager and I was just a you know, just almost ten, nine, ten years old.
0: Mm. So how old were you when you had your first conviction?
1: Um I'm not sure. It was early age, I'd say like thirteen or so.
0: Do you remember what that was for, what the conviction was?
1: I think it would have been robbery. Would have been my first M stolen car. Something to do with those two. Yeah. It would have been. That, well, that's the first time that I got introduced to that and, you know, actually rolling my fingerprints out and things like that. Yeah. So
0: 13 years old, going into a juvenile detention centre in Sydney, what did that feel like?
1: Very scary, especially when you'd go on, you know, off TV programs and videos and all that at the time and show them what it was like inside. It was, it was a scary thought. And I think the scariest thing for me was leaving my mum and... Even though I'm not able to do nothing as a kid and protect her, you know, I just have this thing that I'm leaving her behind, you know, yeah. and I carried that with me. And so when I went away, it was that, that fear of just going in there to that sort of circumstance and being around that people, or the people that, well, they gain the worst people of every suburb you know, so if you think of it, you're inside a place where you've got the worst people or the worst places all in the one room at the same time. Yeah. So if you're nobody and you've come from a place where you haven't been accepted into certain places yeah. and you're not the person pointing down, you know, at people and, um, yeah, it's quite intimidating, really.
0: Because you're a strong, tall, built Man now, but as a 13 year old kid,
1: I was a tiny little scrawny. yeah,
0: <laughs> like in physical size, even would have been made a difference in a juvenile detention facility, I'd imagine. It does.
1: Yeah, it draws attention
0: because there's a big difference between a 13 year old and a 17 year old, even. Yes, and there you, is, you're all in the same detention center in that age group, yeah,
1: yeah, it is. Um, you know, some of the boys in there were huge boys, you know, they were, they were actual men, sort of thing, you know, at an yeah. early age. Um, There's quite a few big boys in there, and obviously the size comes in, as soon as it's you know, someone with size comes into a juvenile system, they, they automatically get that status. They're like, oh, look at that guy, he's a big guy, don't mess with him. Um, that happened a lot. I wasn't at that end of the scale, I was in the other end, you know, so I never got that. So I had to, I guess, make a name, do things to you know, get in with those sort of people and get side by side with those people, you know, not stand nose to nose with them. Like what? Um, Just fights. You'd take fights. You know, um, if they, because the thing is with the bigger blokes at that time, I find with the the big fellas, they they were intimidating to other people, but they never really fought. You know, they didn't really fight people. They just point the finger and say, I want them smashed or something like that, or they'd stand over them and point down at them and scare them yeah but that so they were the intimidators
0: giving the orders
1: yeah that's right and I felt that just they couldn't fight you know so it wasn't until I actually started standing up to them that I started realising that you know and I get the big blokes and come stand over me and I just say not today and I just get up and swing and I found out that most you know those fights I won you know because they were shocked they are going oh but I'm the big guy you know no one's ever hit me before you know and they get this real rude shock and by then it's already finished and so I think that built me up a little bit for my own self confidence, and I changed it around. But the thing is that I couldn't hack. I just, I didn't want to be a part of it because I'm a a person who doesn't like people to stand over people. You know what I mean? I don't like people to oh, stand like the over the weak. Or yeah. yeah, I don't like bullies. I hate it, and I I, I I swear by that till the day I got out. You know, from the prison life. I got out of that and I still hold it to this day. I cannot stand it. If I see it, I will stop it. I will do something about it. Mm. I just can't I can't stand there and watch someone like that. You've been in that intimidating factor, you know? Intimidation, I just don't like it. And I guess that's backed up from what I watched as a, as a kid. You know, when you've seen people curl up in the ball and still get flogged and hurt and everything like that and there's not much you can do about it. You know, I think that played over my mind for many, many years. But the thing is, now I'm a grown man, I can do something about it, mm. you know, so, mm. um, yeah.
0: That sounds like to survive through um, juvenile detention, you had to earn your street cred to do that. In the, within the walls yeah. of detention. Yeah. So, mo- for most of your juvenile um, in and out, you were in and out of juvie. Yes. Th- most of that were drug-related crimes?
1: They were to support drugs yeah to support yeah, yeah so I'd say yes to that Yeah. You know? so yeah. Um,
0: all centred around drugs using drugs selling were, drugs or whatever yeah it
1: had to do with drug related people yeah. or the money to go for drugs and things like that to support it and so yeah it was yeah it was pretty much drug based I'd say
0: yeah so your last stint in prison started in juvenile and ended up <clears> in adults yes would that be right and that was what was that one for
1: um one of the charges of murder Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Can you tell us what was happening around that time and, like, how how you came to commit that particular crime?
1: Um, that crime, I was at the peak of uh, habit. I was at the peak of my drug habit. So I favoured heroin at the time and ecstasies and. Sarah um, packs and things like that. So there was a mixture. There was the uppers and the downers, like okay. really down. There wasn't the in between.
0: It's so on the cocktail of yeah drugs.
1: It was extreme from one end to the other. Um, that time my life, I got to say a lot of bad things. You know, leading up to when I went away. Um, you know, I was already confronted. You know, with with you know guns. I had the police chasing me. They were shooting at me. You know, I had helicopters out. I was in police chases, car chases um, big fights, stabbings, um, and I got to see dead bodies. You know, and they weren't people that I stabbed or killed or anything like that. At the time, that were people that were just ODing, overdosing. Yeah, right. So when we started walking for Cabramatta, because I was, a, you know, the drug of choice was to go to Cabramatta. That was a place where you could always get heroin. Um, when I went into those places, you know, after we scored and got get the drugs, we'd go to the apartments and go into their basement and sit in the car parks. You know, it was, it was a pretty bad time. It was just a place of zombies, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it really took to the streets and unfortunately I was a part of that. You know, and my, my habit got worse because with a little it gets a lot. You know, it gets a lot after that. I just kept getting worse and worse. My habits built higher. The money that was coming through was needed, you know, to get more money. Um, the people that we recruited or hung around or, you know, came across were high-profile reps, you know, or in the grim game from other places, you know. So we got to meet and expand and, go further. And it got us closer to the places, the kingpin areas, you know, that that are named these days now. You know, it brought us closer to those people, you know, and it got worse. You know, the higher you got in that status, the things got worse and it was a lot more dangerous, you know. So, I think I was fortunate enough to, you know, in my belief, I think I was fortunate to go when I did. You know, because I wouldn't be today. Mm. I would definitely not be today. Yeah.
0: So, the person who who you murdered was that um with co offenders or were you by yourself? Or,
1: yes, it was with co offenders. Um, yeah, did you know him or her? Um, the, yeah, we knew we knew them. Um, so they were drug dealers. Um, our thing was at the time, at that time of life, I was robbing drug dealers, so I'd, I'd just go take them because I found you know, why go rob the stores and the banks and all this sort of stuff where you can get recorded and told on and reported to police. So I thought, why not go to the drug dealers? They're not going to tell the police, oh, sorry, but someone robbed my house and they took all my drugs. You know, so I thought, okay, there's money, there's drugs available and everything like that. So we started taking them out. And when I say take them out, we just shut them down. You know, it wasn't intention to go and murder these people. But unfortunately, you know, on that night, it was me or them. You know, that's, that's what it comes down to. So I'm, I'm here today, but unfortunately they're not. Yeah.
0: So that how old were you when that murder happened?
1: 17.
0: Uh, 17. So 17. from the age of 13 to 17, your criminal offending had escalated to the point of murder. Yes. That's yeah. pretty phenomenal.
1: Yes, yeah, quite quick.
0: Obviously you got a prison sentence for that.
1: Yeah, um, I ended up with 17 years as a juvenile. Oh, sorry, 16. 16 years as a juvenile. I did 10 years.
0: 10 years, right. Yeah,
1: so that was my minimum on that charge. Yeah. Um, I had a combination of many charges at the time, so okay. they were all quite violent and they just combined them.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. So it wasn't just murder, it was a number of others? A number of others, yeah. Combined, gave you a sentence of 16 years? Yes. Okay. Okay, so... Um, in prison, so it, just thinking about while you spent that time in prison, you went from juvenile then across to adults once you'd hit 21 or 18? Uh, 21.
1: 21? Yes. So everyone was older than me. I was the youngest one of the group. Then all of a sudden I ended up being one of the oldest one. I'm like, oh, this mm-hmm. isn't good. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, then, yeah, reality hits then. You know, as those little things go, you know, you're the oldest one. You know a lot of people. And then you start seeing people consistently come in, you know, repetitive. You know, I, I remember one of my mates, he's been there 10 times in the time that I spent 10 years in there. You know, I was like, what part of this aren't you getting, mate? Like,
0: Is this in the adult prison? Yeah, adult, off, once well, off, been, through across.
1: juveniles to adults. Oh, you know? right. You're yeah, so the whole time I was in boat. there, yeah, i will seen him in many jails. You know, I went to some 28, 29 different prisons, you know, the whole time I was in there, juveniles and, and jails. And I've seen him in just just about all of them, you know. So I was like, what are you doing? he's still there today. Like, what are you doing, you know? They do call the
0: prison the revolving door. It is. It's a school
1: (laughs) for fools. That's what I call it. Um, But, yeah, it just seems like they keep going back. And I'm like, how do you do that? You know, Mm. like, why? And I guess, like, if I didn't do this big sentence, you know, it's fair to say that I could have probably been one of those people. Okay. You know, so, so what was
0: the difference for you then in that last sentence <coughs> to not be one of those people?
1: My mum. Yeah, she's been my biggest strength. She's... she's. Uh, she's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's my tower of strength, though. Eh? Yeah. So she supported me for everything. And... When I was released, I went for a drive. I just wanted to see what my mum put up with. And I went for a drive out to one of the jails I was at and took three hours to get there. And um, during that that drive, it was, uh, I think it changed my life. My mum was there for me every chance. She was there for the whole time I was in there, any chance she got. Saturday, Sunday, didn't matter. If there was a visit Wednesday, she'd be there. And for my mum, she didn't have everything, you know. My mum suffered from an accident while I was in prison. Um, she got hit by a truck and suffered some injuries from that, you know, and she still came in with a smile on her face and showed me that love. And I guess, for me, I couldn't let that go to waste. You know, she put in that time and effort for me, and I think she deserves that back. Yeah.
0: Wow, so unconditional love is the power, such a powerful... Mm. um
1: It kept me going, you know, having support there. And it's unfortunate, you know, because I really feel for a lot of people in there. You've got some amazing people in jail. They've just been steered in the wrong way. You know, they just need support. And sometimes I don't know how to ask for help. The way they ask, they just, they're not asking direct, you know. They sort of try and swindle people for help. They go next to them and t- sort of drop hints and that, but they're not direct. Mm. Some people don't read it, you know. They don't they don't pick up what you're dropping sometimes, you mm. know. So sometimes there's missed opportunities. And I found that in my life to, to get anywhere in life, you got to have a voice. And you have to use it, you know. People aren't going to guess and no one... Well not everyone can read you, you know. So you just gotta open up and say something, you know, and don't have this thing by the way that we've grown up, you know, toughen up Princess and all this sort of stuff, you know. You know what, we all we're all human. We've all got feelings, we've all got emotions and that unfortunately we just try to fit into places that we felt comfortable and they weren't always the best places for us, you know.
0: So I just wanted to ask you one more question about juvie about spending that time in juvenile yep. i know we, we went on to the adult prison but you just we've gone back there and you reminded me of something um there was a newspaper article that you had um done uh, some time ago um and there was a comment in there how the juvenile system or being part of the juvenile system had made you a murderer yeah okay, could you just talk to that a little bit like what do, what does what does that mean
1: i guess it's like graduating but the first time you go in there, you, you end up just, you know, for some petty crimes and things like that, you know. It could be minor things of stealing the chocolate bar from the, sh- the shop, you know. Um, you do that so often. It won't be the first time, but, if you know, if you do that quite a few times, obviously you're going to go away. Um, it starts with that. Then you go inside and you start talking to the people that steal cars. You know, um, you talk to them for the time that you're in there you get outside you want to try it so you end up stealing the car and the next day you, know, you cop a police chase and all this sort of stuff and end up on the news and go back inside once you get back in there the people go what are you been there for and you go oh, I was stolen cars and they're going alright oh, oh well we do robberies and then you start talking about robberies and they get out they want to rob something now and then they it's just a cycle you know so from a small crime you start talking to people in advanced crimes you know and then it starts getting bigger and bigger next you know you're sitting there with millions of dollars out front of you you know and you're sitting with a you know really big players in the game, you know, and and people that are talking to overseas and cargoes and ships and stuff. Like, There's all this stuff that involves, you know. And, yeah, it just keeps going. That's why I say it's a school for fools.
0: Yep. So what we have as a response to crime and offending is a place to learn more crime and offending for when you get out. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So mum was (coughs) instrumental. It sounds like mum was instrumental in... Where you are today, yes. Because even though I think probably the person that went into juvie was a very broken little boy, but the man I see sitting in front of me today is not a broken little boy. He's he's a changed person. Yes. Um, tell us about getting out of prison. What what happened when you first got out and you know what, where, what, where were you at in your mind and what were you thinking life was going to be like after that long prison sentence
1: um, well let's just say uh, going prior to getting out I chose to start changing myself about two years out now one thing that I haven't mentioned is that prior to being re- released I lost contact with my son okay so I haven't mentioned my son yet but okay. my son was four months old when I went away oh, when I first got jailed and you know everything was well but then it could have been better if I was out there you know so this thing started playing on me and I was like I got a son out there he, you know I'm not good enough for him I'm in here I shouldn't be that man I should be the person in his life and all that um, so I, I had to let my misses go at the time and it's something that yeah it really got to me but it's something that I had to do and I had to break ties because one, I didn't want my son to be brought into a jail. And I didn't think that my missus deserved to, you know, live that life, you know, and because it wasn't her choice, it was my choice. I did something bad, so I didn't think it was fair for her to go and live with that. So I told her to get on with the life. Um, hardest decision I had to make in my life. But it's, um, it's something that I had to deal with, you know, and then from my depressions and all this sort of stuff, while I was inside, I actually tried to kill myself. Um, And that was the day that I truly believe God had to talk to me that day and said, you're not ready yet. You know, you've got bigger things to do, you know. So I never tried again. And going up to prison, you know, two years from out, I started making changes. You know, I started sitting there and going, all right, what do I need to do for outside? How am I going to be effective, you know, proactive and things like that? You know, what am I going to do about things? You know, these people have gone and done so much for me, and invested so much time into me while I was away. So um, when I was inside, I found these, these groups of people and I started to find some good people amongst the people in there, you know, some yeah. real real good people and they just had a bad night out, got drunk and done something silly, you know, so things like that. Um, and I started talking to these people and then with that, I started picking out some things and I was saying, who am I? Like, who am I? I don't know who I am yet. So I started getting to the people that make big impressions in my life, you know? So there's someone that stands tall, you know? There's another person that speaks well in front of people. There's another person that just has that that aura around them, you know, when they walk into the room, their presence is there, you know? And I started picking these things out of everyone. I'm going, all right, I like this guy, but I don't like everything about him. I like this one thing, so I start picking that, and I go, all right, how can I work on that? And I started trying to do that, because I got raised by many men in jail, not by my dad. My dad never got to raise me. He never got to bring me up or father me. So I had to learn to be a man, in a place that was just like just violence you know I had to learn how to find something like that and education and talking I didn't go to school you know like I was supposed to be in school but I was in jail so I lost my education and then it wasn't until later that I started doing you know um, courses and things inside I took everything you know up with both hands whatever they threw at me I grabbed it and then I started making changes and I said all right I'm ready now I'm getting out. I've, I've done whatever I could, you know. Equipped myself with a few things and everything like that. Hung around the right people, even though I was in the bad place. And so I'm going to take that out. But then, when I got out, I found that they dropped me at the front door and said, "Here's the world. Off you go." And okay. that wasn't good preparation for me. <laughs> it wasn't, you know. They, you know, going from maximum, you know, securities and everything like that to just getting put on the street and going, "There you go. Find your way around." Yeah. I was actually sick. Um, I couldn't wear fluoro colours like I'm wearing fluoro right now. I could not wear that. I couldn't see people wearing fluoro colours. I used to actually get sick because the place is dimmed down into a place where it starts playing with your mind. Everything is dull. It's greys, blacks, dark greens, browns, and all this sort of stuff. And it's it's made like that to not make you feel happy. You know, you notice you walk into a room if it's colourful and no, that brings on the best best out of you. You know, you walk sure. in, you're happy, and you're like wow, this is amazing. But you walk in there, it's dull. So it actually suppresses everyone's mind, it just puts them right down there and it just creates that atmosphere about it, you know. Um, so yeah, was, as soon as I walked out the gate, everyone's walking really quick, you know, and then I started getting dizzy and want to spew up, um, my sister took me that night and she took me up to the Harbour Bridge that night and just sat me up front of the bridge and I just glanced at the bridge and I just couldn't believe it, I could see lights and I was like amazed, you know, I could see the stars, I could see the moon and I was like, wow. I never thought I'd get that chance again. Mm. Um, I didn't think I'd make it through there at the start. You know, later on, while I was in there, I knew I, I'm, I'm fine. I didn't get myself in those sort of bad scenarios or situations. But at the start, when you first go into prison, you're like, oh, I'm going to die, <laughs> you know, and okay. that sort of stuff. But um, I was fortunate enough because a lot of my co finders were in there. And I knew a lot of people that spread to bigger crews and everything like that. So it didn't matter who, where I went, I knew someone from there. Yeah, um, That helped me. And I try to take all my criminal sense in business and in the drug trades and all this sort of stuff. Everything that I was doing that had to do with just moving items to people for money and slang and all this sort of stuff. I try to take that sense and put it back into legit life. You know, like transfer use, the skills. Yeah, transfer it, you know, from the criminal criminal side of things and that and put it back out to the street and start doing it for the right reasons, you know. Yep. Um, so I utilize that. And I got out, and, you know, I've got to say that things have gone from strength to strength for me, for having a positive outlook on things. You know, I just find something from everything.
0: Really, you've had this quite a long and lengthy time of offending and re-offending. Yes. Why haven't you re-offended since you got out? What has stopped you?
1: i found purpose in life. Um, Tell
0: us about that.
1: Well, my crime, you know, it was not me in my natural state, you know, I was surrounded by bad influences, I was surrounded by drugs and you know, I was under the influence at the time and things like that, but that's not the real me. I got brought up a lot better than that, in, you know, in amongst all the violence, and that's why I mentioned my mum. My mum showed me that, you know, that there is light in the dark place, you know, there is, there truly is, and she's shown me that. And no matter what happened with the violence and everything like that, my mum was still by my side, and still trying to create good things out of bad things you know she was my saviour she doesn't know it as much as it really is you know like uh, yeah she saved me and i go through that and it's just unfortunate for me you know when i think back at my crime what i've done it's just there's one thing that sticks in my head almost every day when i wake up and i just say it's a shame that it took someone else's life to get mine on track yeah you know that's a pretty powerful um, statement yeah, and I, I keep reminding myself that. There's that, and then the secondly, I always say that, you know, a bad day out here's better than a good day in there. Yeah. You know, so I keep that going. And I'm, I'm naturally a positive person, you know, like, I like to bring positivity into a place. I like being a character. I'm not scared to be a fool in front of people, you know, I don't care, I just like to have fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to spread that to everyone else around me. You know, I think it's a powerful thing in a household. I think that's positive in your, you know, your workplace. Um, and I did get a chance at life, you know. I don't know how other people are making it when they get out of prison and everything like that, but the choices, are, they lay within you. You know, you're an adult, you have ways of doing things. You do, you have You have it there, but if, you, if you're if you not looking at the positive parts, you're only going to be surrounded by the negatives, you know, and you have to find that in yourself. you really got to focus. And it becomes easier, you know. Whatever you do, the more you do it, you become better at it. You know, so if you can focus that every day, look yourself in the mirror and say, what am I today? What am I doing? And have that talk to yourself. And I think, for me, just looking in the mirror every day, you know, just over my shave and everything like that, I just look at, you know, I just say, what am I looking at? What do other people see? You know, it's just even in conversations when you start talking to people and it gets into an argument and everything like that. Just turn it around and put yourself in their eyes for a minute, you know, even a couple of seconds. And just take a look and just say what what are they dealing with? You Because know, 'cause you're not always what you think you are. And I always remind myself of what I've got behind me, you know. I have a child right now, you know, uh, newborn and five other children at home. You know, I have a missus that loves me a lot. And I don't wanna leave that behind. You know, I have a sister that needs me as a brother, you know, there's only two of us. And she needs me to be here. You know, she she goes through her life and she always looks for me for comfort or talking and things like that, you know, I always make a laugh, you know, and those things there keep me away. And if I can sit down and, and just bring a positive influence into their lives, you know, and keep them happy, that makes me very happy, you know, because I feel off that, you know, and I feed off that, you know, other people's comforts.
0: So it sounds to me like mum being in your life, unconditional love and placing value in your life. Yes. The ability to self-reflect and change the way you even see yourself. Yes. And the fact that you have responsibilities to take care of other people and to be there for other people yes. are the three main things that have kept you on the straight and narrow.
1: Yeah, they're the they're the main things, and I got to say, like in, my, in amongst all that, is that I need to challenge myself. I love a challenge. Yeah. And I, so, I as self in
0: achieving goals. Hundred percent. Yeah, mean? achieving
1: goals, and I self evaluate. I, I do it yearly. You know, I can do it. You know, a bit more often than that, but I I, I choose a year. And I've always done that since I was out of prison. I always say to myself, am I better than what I was last year? You know, where was I at this time last year? This same month, same date, where was I last year? I travel back and I look for photos and everything. And What was I doing in my life?
0: Yeah.
1: And I remember the moments, you know. So I go back to it and I say, okay, am I doing better? Am I in a better situation? And if not, well, that means I'm not working, I'm not moving, I'm not trying to go forward. It means that I'm sitting comfortable. And I think, for me personally, I believe that if you're sitting comfortable, you're not making it. You know, you're not getting – because get I've grown time. up with this thing to say, that you know, people say, oh, good things come to those who wait. I'm, I'm against that, totally. I think come, good things come to those who get off their bum and work for it, you know, make it happen. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> and I chose to move to Queensland. Um, I chose to be a part of my son's life. Yep. I chose to be up here and get work. I'm now a manager of a company and everything like that, and I'm seen as a high person high regards in the place I'm at. You know, so I'm a supervisor – um, I didn't think this was doable you know once I was in prison I thought no one's ever going to give me the chance.
0: So you progressed quite quite a bit then in your career to be now managing. Yes. So being in a management position was there ever a time where you had to disclose your criminal record to an employer and tell them what you had done in the past?
1: I've told every one of them at my job interviews. How'd that go? Well because I appreciate my honesty Yeah. and I don't want to give it time for Chinese whispers. You know, I don't think that it's wise to just walk in there and hold it off and let everyone do the talking. You know, because it's very difficult when you allow people to talk for six months and you don't get to defend yourself. Because those stories can just flourish; they can go wherever they want, of and you're sitting can. in the room and you can't do nothing about it. So I'd rather just knock that on the head straight yeah. away.
0: Someone else's version of your story, but when you think of something like murder, one of the most serious crimes, how did you tell that story for them to be okay with it? I know you say you're being honest, but how are you, like... How, I'm thinking in terms of if somebody was listening to your story today that's in a similar position, like, what sort of advice can you give them in terms of telling their story so that someone will be okay with it?
1: i basically basically put it to them that I'm not a bad man. I just made a bad decision. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's, it's as simple as that. As simple as that. Yep.
1: And, you know... I've built up enough courage and strength inside of the prisons to actually sit there and not care about what people say about me. You know, I come out with the truth and I think that, you know, well, I hear this quite often, but the truth will set you free. You know, so I, I believe just bringing it out the front and just being honest with things, you know. I don't have nothing to hide. And I think that builds a lot with the people that I've worked for because they can trust me.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and I've shown my trust. I earn my trust. You know, I don't expect it straight away. Everything is earned these days, you know. Um, but I think... Just me coming out with that just gives them that, you know, just that knowledge that I am straight out. I'm not going to hold anything against you because if I can tell you that I've done a murder, I can tell you what's going on with the company, you know what I mean? And that's where I'm at. Yeah. You know, so I just don't hold it. And I don't want to sit there because I think if I held it back, I'd always be sitting there going, I wonder if they know, I wonder if they know, I wonder if they know, you know, and just sure. it'll just get worse. Yeah. And I can't deal with that. I'm a person that just, my head goes 100 miles an hour you know, I don't sleep at night sometimes because my mind just goes and it's away with the fairies, you know, because I constantly think. Like, I'll be in bed thinking about work, counting the steel that I've got to do the next day as opposed to just sleeping, you know, just having a relaxing night. I can't do it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very committed to what I do. You know, it's the last I,
0: thing you want to also be thinking about
1: then. Yeah. Oh, it's, terrible. it's, it's a terrible thing, you know, but I, I think thoroughly about everything I do now.
0: So you said about your son, you've reconnected then with your son that you had before you went into prison?
1: Yes. So my son's 22 now. Wow. Um, I've reconnected with him uh, two years ago. Yep. Um, In all honesty, I lost hope in that, you know, because it'd been, you know, 18 years, 17 to 18 years of not seen my son. I lost contact with him um, due to them moving on. And I just didn't feel like to be a burden on their life, you know, because I heard he was doing well, you know, I heard he was going through university and things like that and um, in a happy place. Yeah. That's that's the image that was painted to me, you know. So I thought, okay, there it is. I didn't want to confuse my son, you know. My son is – without him saying it, I know it. I know that it's a bit difficult for him, you know, that I wasn't part of it earlier, but I guess that's something that we'll never understand in each other. Yeah. Is that I did it for his best interest because at that time I wasn't confident in myself to say – you know, hi son, I'm your dad, I'm a murderer, I'm from jail, I'm this, I didn't want to give him that. I didn't want to confuse his child, so in my mind, I truly believe that I was trying to do the best thing for him, in not confusing him, because I felt he was in a safe place, he was raised up well, he's got manners, he's a lovely child, you know, so I I didn't want to bring my thing into it and confuse his kid, Um, so I was trying to do the best thing for him. Um...
0: And now you have a new son as well.
1: Yeah, and now we have a new son. So I've now reconnected with my ex partner from 20 years ago. And so your
0: first son's mum is, you've reconnected with her. I've
1: reconnected with her. Okay, and, and
0: you've had a second son together.
1: We've had a second son together. Yeah, so. Amazing. He's, yeah, he's four today. He's four months old today. <laughs> yeah, so it's a good day.
0: And he's gorgeous. I've seen the pictures.
1: Oh, that boy. <laughs> He's awesome.
0: So I'm just thinking about um, obviously you've had a really good um, experience with employers letting you back into the job market and giving yes. you a, a go um, in that sense. But as uh, apart from just employers, what, what would you say to people in society in general about allowing people back into society that have spent time in prison
1: not everyone's going to like you, for one. You know, that's just that's the norms of life. Not everyone... But that's that, good that,
0: advice for the returning prisoner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not but everyone will like them. Not
1: everyone will like you, you know, and it's just the way it is. Sometimes you come with, with a certain presence or the way you talk, your slang or body language, and some people are judgmental, unfortunately. Um, you know, and they do read a book by its cover. So that's one thing that I refuse to do is when I was in prison, I didn't want to get all toted up and everything like that, you know. I just want to be a clean skin and walk out and just... Fit in again. Yeah. Well, other people have got tattoos all over their face and all this sort of stuff, and it makes it difficult, you know. But under those, you know, under those tattoos, there are some seriously, really wonderful people.
0: Yeah. There
1: is. Um, that all comes with that, you know, fitting in and trying to be someone they're not and all this sort of stuff that happens. Some people just love the art, but some people have just put it on there as safety stickers. Yeah. You know. Um, but there is, there's hope for everybody. There is, there really is, you know, and it, you just got to support yourself with the right people.
0: So, find you know, the right people yourself. who will give you a chance.
1: That's right. You know, and there's opportunities out there, but one thing, look, we got to understand this. Going through prison, you should be used to the word no. You know, everything that we want, you don't get. Um, you know, so we are used to being no. So, what changes when we come out? Why do we just walk up to something and go, Can I have this job or whatnot and all this sort of stuff? And they say no. And you don't just go home and say, Oh, that's it, it's the end of it. You know, the. the there's a fine line between that, you know, you can just sit there and feel sorry for yourself, you can get up and move on and keep going. You know, there is so many jobs out there, people say, Oh, there's no jobs. There's jobs everywhere. <laughs> you know. Mm. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've been at a work site where people have just walked in off the street and just said, Mate, I'm looking for a job and they're going, All right, you start tomorrow. Next day they're in there. And it's like that simple.
0: But what would you say mm. to those people who are saying no to encourage them to say yes?
1: I I don't want to force that onto anybody. I don't want to tell them dreams and lies and all this sort of stuff, you know, so like I said, I'm purest form. I just walk in there, accept me as I am, otherwise I can go find somewhere else.
0: Yep. Are your parents still alive?
1: Yes, they are. My parents are alive.
0: Are they both part of your life?
1: They are very heavily involved in my life. Um, So what I've did, I've combined all my family and got all my family up here, which made a lot better for me, my life, my child's life, you know, um, children, you know, my family.
0: So it's big, reunited everywhere. It's your own reunited, family, yeah. your ex partner, your son, yep. your new son. Yep. Did you ever imagine it would get that good?
1: I didn't think it would get that good. I hope so, and I worked towards it. And guess what? It worked.
0: It so that hard work <laughs> paid off for what you wanted. The hard that work goal. did pay
1: off, indeed. Yeah, that's I ended up.
0: I'm just wondering why why you would agree to do this podcast and talk about the fact that you'd committed a murder and yes. what those experiences were like.
1: I agreed on this because I know how it is to be in prison and just think that everyone's against you. I know how it feels to think that no one will ever give you a chance again. Um, I've come to this to knock all that on the head for my personal journey, to say I have done everything possible. I've worked very hard for it. You know, um, Sometimes I don't have to really work at all. Things just happen. But it's all because I'm going in the right direction, and I choose to do that. Um, there is hope. There really is hope. Um, for people that, you know, are going back to bad circumstances, you know, well, it's only going to come back around those bad circumstances. I think that you just, you can't expect to do the same things and expect different results. Like I say, you know, a, a bad day out here is better than a good day in there. Yeah. You know, and for the people that are going through this, don't forget what it's like in there. And that will remind you to not go back, yeah. you know, if you can do that. So... Well, that's my thing anyway.
0: Well, that's thinking about where you've come from and where you are. I just feel like you've spoken about two completely different people and yet it's one yeah. person who's lived an incredible journey. Yeah. And you're still pretty young. There's plenty of life yet to go, David. I can't still wait done. to see where yeah. life takes you from here. Yeah, me too. You know, <laughs> onward and upward and helping other guys, you know, and girls reintegrate back into society. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) all right. Well, thank you, David, so much for sharing your story and being so vulnerable in those, um, you know, giving those details. Um, and I really hope that someone listening to this gets some hope out of that. I'm sure they do. And, um, those people who are contemplating giving someone a second chance as well, also draw some hope out of your story as well. I just think it's really incredible. No, well, thanks for having me, God. No worries. (laughs) Since we began recording crime data both in Australia and across the world, the statistics consistently show that offending behaviour peaks during adolescence, with 15 to 19-year-olds being more likely to have interactions with the police for criminal behaviour than any other age category. The most recent report about crime rates from the Australian Bureau of Statistics shows that the rate of offending among 15 to 19-year-olds is more than double the rate of offending across all other age groups from 10 to 65 and over. These rates have remained consistent over many years. After the age of 19, the rate of offending for young people sharply decreases. This trend is commonly referred to in research as growing out of crime, and this happens due to a number of factors that are connected with getting older. For instance, during the early to mid-20s, young people are finding their first jobs after school, and they start to shoulder responsibilities like maintaining debts, getting married, and for some, having children. Holding down a job and taking care of responsibilities acts as a protective factor against deviant and criminal behaviour because there is less time to engage in criminal behaviour and there is also too much to lose by doing so. You heard David talk about his involvement in deviant and criminal behaviour during his adolescence. Youth offending is different to adult offending in a number of ways. Young people are more likely to be detained by the police for property offences rather than offences against another person, such as violence, where the opposite is true for adult offenders. Young people are disproportionately responsible for offences such as graffiti, vandalism, shoplifting and other petty or property offences. As for more serious crimes such as sexual offences and homicide, these are rarely committed by young people. In 2007, Chris Caneen and Rob White two Australian scholars, suggest that in comparison to adults, young people are also more likely to come to the attention of police because they are less experienced at committing offences. They commit offences in groups, they commit offences in public places, they commit offences close to where they live, they commit attention-seeking offences and their offending behaviour is often spontaneous and opportunistic. While this provides an explanation for why young people commit crime, it doesn't quite offer an insight into the offence of homicide that David committed as a young person, which we have heard is rare. Early studies from the 1950s through to 1970s reported that young people who kill do so because they are psychopathic. In the 1990s, researchers started to move away from the psychiatric perspective they began to consider other factors that might explain youth homicide, such as substance abuse and anxiety disorders. These factors were found to be far more prevalent than psychopathic tendencies to the point where researchers were finding no evidence of psychopathy. In the late 1980s, Professor Dewey Cornell, a forensic clinical psychologist, developed a topology to classify youth homicide. His study that led to these classifications examined family dysfunction, childhood problems, criminal activity, psychiatric history, school adjustment, violence history, substance abuse and stressful life events prior to the offence. Upon reflection of these factors that Cornell was examining, you will recall most of these featured in David's story. Based on the findings of his study, Professor Cornell developed three distinct homicide categories which are characterised by the circumstances that led to the offence of homicide for young people. The first of these is psychotic. These youth offenders presented with psychotic symptoms at the time of the offence and make up for the smallest proportion of young people who commit homicide. The second category is the conflict category. These young people did not present with any psychotic symptoms but were involved in ongoing conflict with the victim. And the third category is the crime category. These young people also did not present with any psychotic symptoms but rather committed a homicide in the course of committing another crime. This is the most common typology for young people who commit the crime of homicide. David's story is a clear illustration of what Professor Cornell was talking about. His life was characterised by a number of the precursors to youth homicide. The intersection of these factors created a situation where this frightened young man responded in the most violent of ways. It may be easy to assume that the most serious of crimes are only committed by those who are inherently evil or cold-blooded. But David's story sheds a different light on this assumption and shows how the journey through tough circumstances in life can quite easily lead to serious criminal outcomes. It could have been any one of us. In the next episode of I Am Not My Crime... When I was turned 17, I joined the Army Reserves to learn how to kill people. And I'd be legally allowed to do that in, in the Army. From my point of view as an ex-prisoner. I've also employed people and I've employed ex-prisoners as well. If I don't give them a go, I'm just going to be another no-entry cross for their future. Thanks for listening to I Am Not My Crime from the University of Southern Queensland. If you have a moment, please subscribe, rate and review. This will help others to discover I Am Not My Crime. I'm Suzanne Reich and thanks for listening. If this episode has brought up any issues and you need to talk to someone, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, Alcoholics Anonymous on 1300 22 22, 22, 22 or Narcotics Anonymous on 1300 652 820. And blokes, if you think you might need help with anxiety, stress, depression or anger, you can speak with a counsellor from Men's Line Australia on 1300 78